Hey, just a uh, couple things uh, real quick. Uh, First Steps with Chris is right after uh, church today. So if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you. And so you can go right down this hallway and to the left. And uh, it's only about 20 minutes, but would love a chance to meet you, connect, and we'll share a little bit about what's going on at the JAR. It's a way for you uh, to kind of know what maybe some other next steps you could take uh, is. So right after the celebration, through those doors and to the left. Well, this week uh, we hit uh, the 700 barrier for acts of kindness as a church. So, uh, we're, yeah, it's something to be grateful for. Now, next week, our hope is to break the 1,000 mark. So um, we're challenging everyone uh, this week uh, to be able to uh, do something that's very simple that many of you can do, and that is to text an encouraging word to someone else. And the way you can do that is simply by going uh, to our uh, Summer of Kindness phone number that we'll pull up here, 765-273-3303. If you haven't put that in your contact list, do it now so that you have it. And some of you are more Facebook-oriented. That's great. If you want to uh, write down those acts, that's a great way as well. But one thing we want to challenge you is to send an encouraging text uh, to somebody each day this week and to let us know about that. So you can put this number down. It's in the program as well, and you can check it out. Um, I did this last week. A a friend of mine uh, celebrated Father's Day for the first time without his dad. And so in the midst of that, I wanted to give him some encouragement. So on Saturday night, I just sent this text, and I'll show you what I sent. Uh, Thinking of you this Father's Day, your dad was a great man, and you are an amazing son. I may have given this scripture before, but I hope it encourages you. Our God is a father to the fatherless. Now, that didn't take me more than a minute, but think about the encouragement that was received on the other side of that. So think about it this week. Anyone uh, that you can send a text to and then let us know. Now, some people have sent me emails or have talked to me about, man, I like this summer of kindness thing, but I just feel a little bit awkward doing an act of kindness and then letting other people know about it. Well, if you're there, I understand that because I feel that way as well. And so I did Facebook for a while, but what I do now is I text, and no one reads those. We simply count them, and uh, we are connected that way. So if you're like, hey, I don't want anyone to know, you can do it that way. It's totally anonymous. Uh, No one will uh, say anything within the midst of that. Okay. Well, today we are looking at a brand new series that is our summer series. Each summer, I try to think of a way in which uh, we can uh, kind of go deep in a particular uh, passage of Scripture. And we're going to do that this week. And I'd like to begin this morning simply with this question, or thought, I guess, is this. Is that sometimes things get stuck in my head and I can't get rid of them. Does that happen to any of you? Sometimes something gets stuck into your head and you just can't get rid of it. And many times for me, the things that get stuck the most are like television commercials or uh, slogans from companies. And so I did a little research this week. In the 1960s, there was a particular toy that was used and they 
put a tagline to it so that everyone would go out and buy it because they knew if they got it stuck in your head, you would go buy it. Now, I was not born in the 1960s, but some of you were. So you might remember what this is. But here it is. Here's a picture of it. What is that? Yeah, Slinky. And remember the tune that they got so that many of you would buy it? It's Slinky, it's Slinky, fun, it's a wonderful toy. It's Slinky, it's Slinky, it's fun for a girl and a... Oh, look at that. Some of you already know it. Yeah. Some of you are old. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what it is. All right. But in the 1960s, they used this toy and they got that stuck in your head and you still remember it over 50 years because of that. Now, in the 1970s, look at this commercial. How many of you remember this? What's this stuff? Some cereal. It's supposed to be good for you. Did you try it? I'm not going to try it. You try it. I'm not going to try it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah. He won't need it. He needs everything. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. There are two kinds of white cereals to please. I mean, if you saw the live commercial, you'll always remember that, right? That it's Mikey. He likes it, right? And it gets stuck in your head. Now, in the 1980s, uh, we came with something else. Uh, let's check out a video for this it's one. It's a very big, fluffy fun. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. Okay, what was the key phrase in that commercial? Yeah, I know. I mean, like, Wendy's was not even on the map as a fast food restaurant, and they came out with that commercial, and immediately everything went up and to the right. Why? Because it got stuck in your head. How about the 1990s? Let's check this out. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Okay, and what was the phrase? That's the only Spanish some of you know, isn't it? You're pathetic. That's what you are. You are pathetic. Yeah, that's the only Spanish you know. But you remember that, right? It gets stuck in your head. Okay, in the 2000s. Let's check this out. You know who sang that song? Yeah, Justin Timberlake. She doesn't count because she was at the first celebration, okay? So, yeah. And they, McDonald's changed their entire marketing to go da-da-da-da-da, then what? I'm loving it. And you know what? You love it, don't you? And many people, I mean, like McDonald's, that becomes their thing. Well, uh, in 2010, what took place was something a little bit different. They tried to start doing not only commercials that would get stuck in your head, but they tried to create different kind of dance things, and they would start coming back. Like last year, anybody remember the whip nene? You want to see it? No. <laughs> yeah. No, it's all right. I want I don't want my back to go out or anything, you know. But earlier in this decade, there was this guy from South Korea that came up with something that no one else had ever known before. But this particular dance became uh kind of drilled into our heads, and it's something that we all remember a phrase from it. Let's check it out. Yeah, 
Okay. So I will never learn how to do that dance. I'll tell you that right now. But that phrase, Gangnam Style, none of you even knew what that was until this came out. And then he used this. This one guy in South Korea blew up the Internet and went all over YouTube and everyone started dancing this in clubs and it was all a part of it and they used it for commercials and marketing, all kinds of things, just so that it would get stuck in your head. And so my question this morning is, do things ever get stuck in your head? Because for me, things do get stuck in my head. But sometimes they're the wrong things. Many times I can go through a day and something will happen and I'll go, man, I'm, I'm just not good enough to do this. Or I'm not smart enough to be able to speak on this. Or I'm not strong enough to be able to get through whatever this is. And those things get stuck in my head. And when those things get stuck in your head, it becomes very, very difficult for you to get rid of them. And then you have parents that sometimes, uh, as you were growing up, they put things in your head like you're not good enough. You're not going to amount to anything. And all of those things get stuck, and it's very, very difficult for us to get beyond that. But I'm sure that's just something I struggle with, right? Like none of you ever have anything that gets stuck in your head that puts you down. But have you ever had some of these phrases stuck in your head before? Thoughts like, I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough boyfriend. I'm not a good enough girlfriend. I'm not a good enough son. I'm not a good enough daughter. I'm not a good enough friend. I'm not a good enough employer. I'm not a good enough employee. Maybe you've had this thought before that even if you're a Christ follower, you'll go through moments where you're going, I'm not a good enough Christian. If people really knew what was going on, I just know that I'm not good enough. Or you might even say, I don't have a good enough relationship with God. Maybe when you pray, you pray to God and you're like, ah, that'll never get answered because my prayers aren't good enough. I'm not worthy enough for God to answer my prayers. And each of us at different times, we get these things stuck in our heads and the problem is, is that many of the times the things that get stuck are the wrong things. So over the next eight weeks, what I want to do is be able to put some things in your head that will stick, but will actually encourage you and build you up. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to give to you one encouraging scripture verse, and then one sticky statement. There's other things that stick, but we want something different to stick in your head over the rest of the summer. Now, when each of you walked in today, you should have received a little keychain that looks like this. So uh, if you would, just pull this out for a second. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. We'll get one for you, but everyone will need one. So they'll raise their hands, and if you guys can pass them out there in the back, don't feel ashamed. Uh, that just means we didn't reload at the end, okay? So uh, they can give you one. But we want to make sure that everyone gets one. And so we're going to be talking about a kingdom style, a different way to live that things can get stuck in our head. And there will be a little tag that is connected to each one of them. And within the tag, there'll be a verse that we're going to challenge you to memorize and then a sticky statement for the summer. And so this is the verse... Uh, that we're going to look at today, and it's the one we want you to think through uh, this week and to uh, try to memorize. Here it is. Let's read it out loud together. It'll come up on the side screen. Let's read this out loud together. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's look at the second one uh, on the back side. We have a sticky statement. It's right beside. It's your first fill in the blank if you haven't filled one in. But this is what it says. Let's say it out loud together. God is more than enough. God is more than enough. And so those are the things that we want to stick in your head uh, over this particular uh, summer. And if we, this week, if all of you could go through your week and you would say whatever hits your life, if you were able to say God is more than enough than whatever this is, then what an amazing week you would have. So, are you ready to dive into our text today? Okay, maybe there'll be more excitement next week, all right? So, are you ready? All right. Now, we're going to look laser focus on a particular uh, passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. I'll talk about it here in just a second. But it's in Matthew chapter 5. And here's my first question. If you have a book called Matthew, who do you think wrote it? Who? Good. Look at that. You're already one for one. Look at that. Okay. Now, this is what you need to know about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and that's basically a present-day IRS agent. How many of you love IRS agents? Yeah, right, liar. Um, Nobody does, right? And that's the way Matthew was. No one really cared about him. And Jesus was walking down a road one day. And the reason people didn't like him is because they worked for the Roman government that had occupation of their country, Israel. And they had to find these certain Jewish people that would take the money from the Jews. And they said, we don't care what you put on top of that, but you have to bring in at least this much. And what would happen is these tax collectors would cheat people and not only take what Rome asked for, but they would ask for more. And people hated them. And Jesus is walking down a road one day and he sees Matthew in this little tax collecting booth and he walks up to him and he says, hey, come follow me. And Matthew leaves and he does that. And he becomes one of the 12 disciples. Cool, cool story. Now, when was this passage written, or when was this book written? Around 60 to 65 A.D. Not exactly sure, but about 30 years after resurrection, this happened. And who was his audience? His audience were Jewish people, Jews. Because Matthew was a Jew, and he wanted to let them know, hey, you can trust me. I know our lineage, and so now I want to tell you what the whole purpose of what I'm writing is, and it's this, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal King. That Jesus is the one that Isaiah talked about 700 years ago. This is the chosen one. This is the anointed one who is going to save our people. Well, this gives you a little bit of background about Matthew in general. And now we're going to kind of go laser focus on chapter 5, the verse 10 verses, over the next eight weeks. And these are called the Beatitudes. They're blessings. Blessings that Jesus gives. And we're going to look at this uh, in a focused way. Now, let me give you a little bit of background leading up to Matthew chapter 5. First of all, Jesus was born. He grows up in his family. And then when he starts his public ministry, the very first thing he does is he gets baptized by his cousin, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. He gets baptized, he comes out of the water, and the scripture tells us that immediately he was taken into a desert where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, but he didn't give in to any of that. 
some angels come. They nurture him, take care of him for a little while. And then he begins his public ministry. He walks down a particular sea, the Sea of Galilee. He sees a couple of fishermen there. And he says, hey, you guys, come follow me. And well, the cool thing is they leave everything and they come and follow him. Two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter, James and John, and they walk to follow him. He goes into the synagogues, the places where Jewish people worshipped. And he would go in and he would teach. He would go out and he would heal the sick. Tons of diseases that were taken away through his healing power. And then news spreads and there's this powerful message of Jesus that goes out, not just to dozens, but eventually hundreds. And finally there are like thousands of people that are around and they're following him. Now the thing is that you have to realize is that most of these people are extremely poor. Financially, they struggle. And they're the social outcasts, the people that aren't welcomed into the church of their particular day, the temple. And so in chapter 5, Jesus has this large crowd that's coming, uh, that's gathering around him, and he realizes that he has to go up to a mountainside if he's going to be able to speak to all of the groups of people. And so he goes up to this mountainside, and it was near, they say, the Sea of Galilee. We have a picture of it where it came up, where he walked up and he begins to start speaking to this large crowd of people. And in verse chapter 1, it says this in Matthew chapter 5. Now, when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So again, Jesus sees this large crowd and he says, hey, they're not going to be able to hear me if I'm down there talking and we're all on the same level. So I'm going to go up to the top of this mountain. When I speak, then everyone will be able to hear. And he brings his disciples, his closest friends with him. And they're all up there and they're all connecting together. Now, it's interesting. The scripture says that Jesus sat down when he began to teach. Now, why do you think he sat down? Well, if you were walking around all the time, you might want to sit down too, right? Well, we're not sure. It could be because he was tired, but most scholars believe that he took a position in which everybody would know that he was a teacher, he was a rabbi. Every time people in the Jewish faith spoke and they were a rabbi, they were a distinguished kind of teacher, they would sit down and then people would listen to them. And so that's what he does. He begins his teaching by giving these eight Beatitudes that we want to get stuck in your head over these next eight weeks. Eight blessings. And the first one he gives is our first verse that we just talked about earlier that we're going to dive into now. And that I'm challenging you to get stuck in your brain. And here it is. It begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, as I said earlier, most of the people that followed Jesus were people without means, who didn't have, who had very few resources. And I'm sure that there were recordings because they were poor that got stuck in their brain. Recordings like, you're poor and you're always going to be poor. You're never going to find happiness. You'll never amount to anything. And what's so cool is Jesus starts his teaching off. He has all of these people without means. And he says, blessed are the poor. And everyone's looking around. You feel very blessed? Nope. 
You feel blessed? No. What do you feel? I feel po. I can't even spell the O, O in there. You know, I'm just po, P-O. That's it. And so everyone's kind of there and they're like, who is this guy? The poor, the, the poor, the poor, the poor in spirit are blessed. He says, I'm going to give you some new recordings now in these next 10 verses that are going to change the way you think. And he says, the way I'm going to begin is by saying, poor, you're blessed. Now that word blessed comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is makarios. And what it simply means is that you're happy, you're fortunate. And it's not a temporary happiness. It's not even a happiness based upon your circumstances. It says no matter what you're going through, whatever is happening, that if you are blessed, the reason you feel happy and you feel fortunate is because you have a relationship with God. Blessed are those who have this relationship. And Jesus says blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Now, again, when you think of that word poor, most of the time you do not think about happiness. You do not think about blessedness. You do not think about being fortunate. When you think of poor, you think of someone who is struggling, who may be sad. There's a guy that uh, some of you may have seen before, and uh, he is always at I-69 and 332. And he comes out, and he has a sign, and he tries to collect money. He's there almost all the time, anyone that commutes there back and forth. Well, a person in our church uh, saw this, and uh, it was a random act of kindness. And she's like, I always kind of wondered, did he use the money wisely? I'd heard some different things. But she said, I just didn't really care about it, so I just went, and I gave him a gift. And when I gave it to him, he had a prayer bead around him from the Catholic faith called the Rosary, And he took it off of himself and he gave it to her and said, you need it more than me, you can have this. Now, if you're blessed in the poor in spirit, you don't ever worry about giving something away, even if you're poor, because you know that you have a relationship with God. And she said, you know, immediately I was just emotionally taken back by the fact this guy had nothing and he wanted to give to me. When I've gone to Mexico before and I've been in the middle of landfills where kids are eating out of the trash that people have thrown away and they will want to give something to me. Why is that? Because their only dependency is upon for God to provide for them. And so Jesus says, actually, blessed are the poor in spirit. But this is what I found out in my life, is that most of the time, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't want to be dependent upon God alone. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to work things out on my own. I want to have an I-can-do-it-by-myself kind of attitude. And why do I do this? Because I don't want to be dependent upon anyone else. So simply put, being poor in spirit is this. You seek God's help more than anything else. You seek God's help more than anything else in your life. Now it's interesting to me that as children grow up, they soon want to have their own independence. They do not want to be dependent upon anyone. And we see it Um, from very young children. For example, if you have a young child, 
and they're doing something, and you come up to them, and you're like, here, let me help you do this because you want to show them how to do it better. What does that young child say? No! No! I do! That's why Shiloh used to always go, no, I do, I do, I do. Okay, kid, do it. Jump off the cliff. I don't care. (laughs) Just joking. But little kids will go, no, 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 I do. Or I don't need any help. Or I can do this on my own. In 1998, I had pastored a small church that went from 60 to over 120 people in five years. It doubled in size. In the denomination that I had been a part of, I was like the golden child. People were wanting me to come and do things. And I said, no, i got to go to seminary, but seminary is not going to be a big deal because look what I've already done. And I thought I was big man on campus. I had this I-can-do-it-by-myself kind of attitude. And you know what? Even though I was going to a place where we were studying theology and where we were studying the Bible, I just didn't want God to have to help too much, so I never ask him for any help. And this is the thing, folks, that if you go through life with an I-can-do-it-myself attitude, you know what God will do? Do it yourself. You want to do it on yourself? Then go ahead. And he'll give you a leash. And sometimes people like to take it a very, very long way. Some people figure it out early on, but he says as long as you want to go, you can go and do it on yourself or do it by yourself. And yet the more that I tried with school, the more I found that I was just a failure. I mean, I had been away from school for five years, and then I went back to grad school, and I thought I was going to be big man on campus. Guess what? No. You had all these little young kids coming out of college straight into seminary. They knew more about Greek and every other particular discipline than I would have ever known. They've got their Bibles all marked up. I remember one time I went home after the first Old Testament test, a true story. I took my Bible, realizing it wasn't marked up very much. I just got a highlighter out, and I started highlighting it all over the place. But that didn't help me with my grades. And I started failing one class after the other. And I would have to drop a class, and I kept failing more and more and more. And it led to a very dark time, the darkest time in my life, a time that I call my 40 days and 40 nights. And I went into a full-blown depression filled with anxiety. And I'm not talking about, oh, I had a bad day today, or I'm just a little bit down. I'm talking about being in a black hole where you don't see light, where you don't think anything is going to change in your life. And there was this cloud, this heavy cloud that was over me during most of that semester. And during this whole time, I didn't seek God. I tried to do it by myself. And finally, the depression and the anxiety got a hold of me so much to where for 40 days, I found myself on my knees every single morning with a toilet in front of me, dry heaving into the toilet, wanting so badly for the anxiety and the fear and the depression to get out of me, but nothing was coming. And I'll never forget when I got to about day 20 and my wife would be there. She would gently just kind of hold me. I started thinking to myself, I bet she wonders, why did I marry him? 
why did I put up with him over these last 20 days? And I started thinking, these recordings came into my head that other people probably were saying, you know what, this guy, he's never going to be a good pastor. He, he just keeps failing class after class. He has to drop classes. He's never going to make it. He's going to be a failure his whole life. He's a loser. And these recordings, they kept coming and coming and coming. And finally, one day, I'll never forget, I was on my knees. And the dry heaves were coming. And as I was on my knees, I thought to myself, I can't do life by myself anymore. I can't do a single minute by myself anymore. And I remember lifting my hands up to God, saying, God, take this. Take this. And he said, you, and I I felt this prompting, I'll take it, but you have to give it to me. Everything. And it was in that moment, for the first time in my life, that I was fully dependent upon God. I said, God, you take it all. I need you every moment of every single day. And the reason that most of us never get to that point is because we don't want to share our mess. Because if we share our mess, then we feel ashamed. And if we feel ashamed, other people will uh, know that. And we think to ourselves, well, I don't need any more help. And I was disillusioned, folks, with this idea that I can do it by myself attitude. And I realized that God had to be the number one thing in my life. That he had to be everything for me. And I renewed this dependence upon him. And once I renewed this dependence, I got on some medication, I got some counseling, I got some Christian friends that were around me to be accountable to me. And I realized that I could never go through life again with having that kind of attitude that I can do it by myself. I realized that I was not enough, but this is the other thing I realized, that God was more than enough. That I wasn't enough, but that God was more than enough. I just want to share this with you this morning, that God is not very impressed by your strength and your self-sufficiency. He's not. He never gets all that excited about that. You know who he's drawn to? People who are weak and they admit it. And Jesus said that those kind of people who were weak and they admitted it, that they were the poor in spirit. And he says the number one blessing goes to them. And the Bible is filled with tons of examples of how God loves to use imperfect, ordinary people to do extraordinary things out of their own weakness. Let me just give you a few examples. There's this guy named Isaiah. He comes into the presence of God. This is what he says. He says, Woe to me! I have unclean lips. He says, My lips are just so unclean. You know what God did with Isaiah? He turned his life around so much that he became the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and God gave to him the message 700 years before Jesus was born that that day was going to happen. And Isaiah was like, there's some stuff that needs to stick and other stuff 
that doesn't need to stay. How about Moses? Moses murdered a man. And yet God said, hey, I'm going to choose you to take my people who have been in slavery for 400 years and we're going to go to the promised land. And he said, you'll write the first five books of the Bible. And Moses was like, hey, man, some things can stick, but God has a way of helping other things to stick. Jacob was a cheater. And yet God used him to develop the 12 tribes of Israel. And something else could stick. In fact, he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Rahab was a prostitute. And yet God used her to save two spies that if they weren't saved, more than likely, all of Israel would have been destroyed. And then, you know what's interesting about Rahab? Is that she was the great, 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 the fifth great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. She's in his lineage. Some things stick, but not everything has to stick. David committed adultery, and yet God said this of him. He is a man after my own heart. Considered the greatest king of the Old Testament in Jesus' lineage. There's a story of this woman who's at a well one day. Jesus walks up, and he says, hey, you've been married five times. She's like, how do you know? And he says, on top of that, the guy that you're shacking up with right now, you're not married to him. She's like, whoa. He said, you know what? I love you. Things are going to change in your life. I'm going to give you something new, fresh, living water. And Jesus shared the message. And it says that almost the entire town believed because of her. Paul helped to murder other Christians. He was there to help do that, and yet God used him to turn the world upside down, and he wrote close to half of the New Testament. Now, I've told you about my story for years. This was Chris Bunch, immoral, lying, deceiving, angry, tightwad, selfish person. But in 2003, he said, I'm going to use you to start a church, and it's going to impact the community of Muncie. Not because of you, but because of me. And God did that. And today, if you think I'm not enough, that there's no way that God is enough to work in my life, you're sadly mistaken, because you could just add your name to this list as well. I mean, if you are messed up in life, you are a candidate for God to use. Because this is the truth. If God only used perfect people, guess how much would get done? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he says, what I want to use is people who are poor in spirit, who are able to say, here are my imperfections. I need to stop pretending that I have it all together and I can be honest that I am poor in spirit. I need your help, God, more than anything else. And as Jesus said, he said, if you get to that point, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? What's it say? It's the kingdom of heaven. He says, folks, when you are poor in spirit, that is when you are closest to heaven, when you are rewarded with the kingdom of heaven, where heaven invades earth and it meets you at your greatest need because you're most dependent upon God. One day Jesus wanted to make this uh, concept of the kingdom of heaven and how you could get there. So he takes a little kid, he puts the kid on his lap, and Jesus says these words. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles themselves like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, it's children who have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Kids are much more trusting than adults, aren't they? That's why we have to have all of these different things of like, don't trust strangers, right? Because they're very, very trusting. And they believe. Like you tell them something, they just believe in it. And children believe that God is able to handle any problem. Any problem that you think. They're like, oh, once the concept of God gets in their brain, they're like, well, God can do it. And they never do this. They never go, I'll figure it out first. They're just like, oh, I'll give it to God first. Any four-year-old in any culture that I've ever been in, and I've traveled the world before, they still believe in miracles. They believe that if, if something's not right, that God could actually move in and change things, that God can do anything. And then this is what happens. Adults come in, and we begin to teach them what you shouldn't believe. And kids eventually don't. You know, I don't say this for any other reason except it's true. But my two daughters, Jordan and Shiloh, have taught me more in the past nine years about the essence of having faith in God more than anyone else. How to trust Jesus no matter what. Many times I get stressed, I get overwhelmed, I get anxious about something, and all of a sudden, one of them will go, Dad, it's going to be okay. Like, no, it's not. No, 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 Dad. God's got this. He's got this. Last summer, we're on vacation in South Carolina. And I don't mean like in Charleston. I mean in Edisto Island where there is no human beings on the island except those who are tourists. And we get there and our van breaks down. And we're thinking to ourselves, there's no way. My wife and I, there's no way. This is horrible. This is the worst of worst. This is not going to change anything. And I'll never forget uh, my two girls kind of just grabbing my shorts and pulling on him, saying, Daddy, God's big enough to handle this. I'm thinking to myself, no, he's not. And he did. You see, God desires us to be childlike, more humble, more dependent. You know the problem with uh, adults? We don't become childlike, we become childish. And childish means that I'm selfish, I want my own way, I want how it's going to be, I can do it by myself, here's my toys, I'll take care of it. He says, no, 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 not childish, I want you to be childlike, humble, dependent on me. Rather than listening to the lies, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, God is not going to be enough in this situation. He desires for us to be poor in spirit, to seek his help more than anything else. But you know what? Being poor in spirit, it's a choice. You get to choose. You get to decide. You see, folks, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, does not make you poor in spirit. Of a video of a friend of mine by the name of Brent Close. And Brent uh, came here the very first Sunday was the first anniversary of the church. We used to have uh, this particular divider down and it was yellow and it smelled and it was black you couldn't even tell it was yellow and we were we were on this side of the of that and on that first sunday we lifted it up and we had a few extra chairs and brent came that very first sunday and he was extremely excited and he just kept coming 
Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He started helping with our children's ministry that was upstairs in Jar Kids. And uh, now he's one of our trustees. But the thing you need to know about Brent is that he is a businessman and he has this attitude that I can do it by myself. I can do everything by myself. And within that attitude, the thing was that Brent was not poor in spirit. He was not poor in spirit at all. But one day, he was released from his job as a marketing advertising cable job that he had. And it was at that time, within that job, that he figured out, I know exactly what I'm doing next. And he went and he found his own job, the job that he thought was best for him, and he did it. But he never asked God to help him in the process of choosing the job. He didn't seek God's help at all. He just got the job, and he thought it was His plan. He thought his plan was good enough. And after about a month, he hated the job. He absolutely despised it. It was horrible. And look at the screens as we look at Brent's journey to relying on God. A few years ago, I was working in a plumbing company. During that time of my life, I relied more on my own abilities than on my faith in God. I knew God. He was a part of my life but I didn't rely on him or trust in him to take care of me and my family. I seemingly had everything I wanted, but I wasn't truly happy with my job. My wife and I prayed about my job, and we felt God was saying the best thing for our family was for me to quit. It was a very difficult decision. To give up a steady paying job, something that was secure and took care of my family for the unknown, but I decided it was time to trust in God to take care of us. While it wasn't easy, it was a very freeing feeling to place my future in God's hands. In fact, my wife mentioned to me about that summer being one of the most fun summers we had together as a family. I sent out over 300 resumes and filled out over 50 job applications. I was searching for a job for five months. I was offered a couple of jobs in that span. I was even offered my old job back at a lower pay, but I felt like God had something better for me. I did find a new job, and I finally felt like I know what I'm here for, not just with my job, but with my life. I was baptized in 2011. I started serving in a larger capacity at church. I am closer with my family, and I have learned to care about more than myself. But most of all, I now know God is more than enough for me. Yeah, that's great. Well, today some of you are at a crossroads in your life. Is God enough or God isn't enough? For some of you, marriage is the thing that's at that crossroads. And you're trying to work on it and make it right and do everything. You're trying to control everything within the marriage, but you haven't really gotten to that point of total surrender, of dependency, of saying, God is enough. For others of you, you're single and you hate it. 
And so each weekend you just hook up with different people, but you never build any kind of solid relationship. And you want this to change, but you're wondering in your mind, is God enough to trust that he can find the person for me? For others of you, it's your finances. They're a mess. They've been a mess for a very, very long time. And you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, thinking that there are going to be different results because you think to yourself, God is not enough to be able to handle this. For others of you, you have a wayward child. You've been trying to straighten them out, make sure that things are right with them, but nothing really changes. And you've kind of reached your limit and you're like, God is not enough to change who they are, but maybe he is. For others of you, it's a health issue. You've got some kind of health issue that you're struggling with and you're wondering in your mind, is God enough to be able to heal this sickness? Because you're not sure that he is. For others of you, you have an eating disorder. Every time you get depressed or anxious or whatever, you just eat more and more and more and your health is getting worse and worse and worse. Or maybe others of you are on the other side and you're bulimic or you're anorexic and you try to hide it all, but you're really fearful that if someone knew exactly what I look like, I just wouldn't be enough. So I keep doing that. And for others of you, it's alcohol and drugs. You're trying so hard, even though we have a program, Celebrate Recovery at 7 o'clock, you're trying to do it on your own. I can do it by myself. You need to seek him more than anything else, but you're not sure he's enough. And folks, the crossroads that, are, that you're at could be limitless. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's workaholism. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's gambling. But you're struggling with something greatly, and you're just wondering yourself, is God enough or is God not enough? And today, many of you are at this crossroad, and the reality is you get to choose which one you're going to believe. Which recording are you going to have in your head? And you can trust that he really is one who can help you through that. Today, God's word says this to every single person in this place. Let's read it out loud together. Indeed, God is ready to help you right now. What's the last word? Now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. God says he is ready to help you right now. And you have to choose whether you're going to be poor in spirit or you're going to have an I can't do it myself kind of attitude. So at this time, I'm going to invite you to stand And we're going to sing a song that we sang in the first set called More Than Enough. And I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. And if during the opening prayer thing, you're like, you know what? I just didn't, I was still trying to wake up maybe, you know, (laughs) didn't have it together. But if you need prayer for anything, these people would love to pray with you. And so uh, we're not going to sing the whole song, but just a little bit of it. And I want you to listen to the words that he really is more than enough.